there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. Maybe you're both Christians and you've been telling yourselves, well, we really love each other and one of these days we're going to get married. And so what's wrong with going to bed now? And after all, we've been going to bed for the last six months. So why should we stop now? My answer is the reason you should stop now is because God says that it's sin. If you're really serious about being a disciple, then you give up your right to yourself and you take up your cross, which which means obedience. But your confession means repentance means that you're going to turn around and go the other direction. So I hope that God will give you the grace and the courage to say to that other person, I'm sorry, I sinned against you. I sinned against God. We did it wrong. It's going to be different from now on. My advice to you would be to break off with that person. Don't put yourself in a position of temptation. But you can start over and God will give you back your chastity, although he can never give you back your virginity. Faithful means dependable. It means conscientious. It means committed and means responsible. Who are the ones who take responsibility in your neighborhood, in your church, in your town, in your school, at your job, in your home? Obviously, in, a, in the home, the father is the one on whose desk the buck finally stops. He is responsible for his wife and for his children. And if he loves his wife as Christ loved the church, that means laying down his life for her, doesn't it? To make her pure and holy, as Paul says in Ephesians 5. If he is responsible for the children, then that means responsible for the way they behave for the way they behave in church, for the way they behave in the grocery store. When you see the children going crazy, you know that it's because the parents have not exercised proper control. You note-takers are completely at sea right now, aren't you? I haven't been very helpful. The title of the talk is set in order. Okay, here's point one. Obedience. Obedience means that we must be holy. When Jesus came to earth, he said, Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do thy will, O God. He is the source of my faith, the pioneer and the perfecter, the beginning and the end. And what Jesus did, I am to do. If even Jesus came to be obedient to his father, then I, as one of his followers, must be obedient. I was completely floored one time when I was speaking, when in the question and answer period, a man raised his hand and he said, you keep telling me that I'm supposed to be obedient to God. Why? I was so stunned, I was speechless for a minute. I, I couldn't even imagine anybody asking the question, why should I be obedient to God? Well, I don't remember what answer I gave him at the time, but uh, when you buy a new gadget or a new appliance or a new car, it usually comes with a set of instructions, doesn't it? 
And if you try to work the thing and it doesn't work, then when all else fails, what do you do? Read the instructions. Well, we've got the instruction book right here. The one who made us, the manufacturer, knows how things will work best. So one good reason for obeying God is that things work better that way. I don't mean that everything's going to work out according to your agenda. Again, we're back to God's agenda. But his total, his ultimate purpose for every one of us is what? Joy, bliss, fulfillment, perfection. Because he loves us. You fathers and mothers, do you love your child? What do you want for that child? You couldn't possibly want anything less than joy and bliss and fulfillment and perfection. And the reason that you are so faithful in disciplining that child is in order to bring him to perfection. You want to make him be a nice, get along withable, pleasant person to live with. And if you haven't done your job, he is going to be an unget along withable, unpleasant person. Unless by the grace of God, God, he makes him something else that you can't take any credit for. But that's what God is up to, too. He, he loves us. And whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. He disciplines. And when he does this, then we must be obedient, mustn't we? Now, one of the big questions that always arises when I talk about obedience is, how can I know what God wants me to do? I'll give you three very simple things to, to begin with. I've already given you one about ten times. Number one is present your body. Turn over the rights. It's no good suddenly coming to God because you desperately need help with a decision that has to be made this afternoon. And asking him for guidance about that decision, if you haven't already made the decision long before that you're going to be his disciple and that you're going to take up your cross and follow him. That is the prior decision that has to be made. You turn over everything to God. That is a once in a lifetime final decision. But that's going to be followed by every day of your life making new decisions in the light of that original one. You know, I don't have to decide again whether I'm going to obey God in something that he has already shown me. For example, thou shalt not commit adultery. I don't have to pray about whether or not to commit adultery. I don't have to take my pastor's time and say, look, I'm in love with this other woman's husband. What do you think I should do? The pastor knows and I know what I'm already supposed to do. Obviously, you don't ask the guidance of God in something where he has made it perfectly plain unequivocally plain but suppose you want guidance about what college to go to or whom to marry or what career to prepare for or what to major in or whether to buy this new car or whether to take that job whether to move to someplace else all of us have to face these huge life-changing frightening decisions how am I supposed to get guidance for that well let's make sure that we've started where we need to start Lord I am yours I will do anything you say so Give God that blank sheet of paper with your name signed at the bottom. Tell him you'll do anything he says. And people are always saying to me, but how am I supposed to tell the Lord I'm going to do anything he says until he tells me what it is? 
that's where trust comes in, isn't it? You know, if, if you ask a guy for directions on the street and he says, well, I'm going there myself, just follow me. You wouldn't follow him if you didn't trust him. You don't ask him to tell you the route in advance. You just follow him. And that's what Jesus said. He's not going to give you the route in advance. If you want to be my disciple, you give up your right to yourself, which is saying, Lord, it's up to you. And then you take up your cross and you follow. Point one, under point one, or A, under one. One is obedience. A is present your body. Number two is read your Bible and pray. There is no way that I can emphasize that strongly enough. You have got to saturate your mind with the scriptures. You've got to listen to what God says. And you can't listen to what he says if you don't read his word. And you must pray. You must talk with God. There has to be a two-way communication continually going on. And maybe you don't like the idea of private devotions. Maybe you can't find a quiet time. And I'd like to ask the older Christians here who have been walking with the Lord for a number of years. Have you ever found a quiet time? It doesn't work that way. Nobody has time to do something like that. You take time. You make time. My father got up between 4.30 and 5 every morning of his life after he became an adult and became a father of a family. And people would say to him, I don't see how you do that. You know, I'm not a... Back in those days, we didn't have this nonsense about morning persons and afternoon persons. We didn't know all that. My father told us kids after 42 years, he said, it has not gotten any easier to get up. I don't get up because I feel like getting up. When people would say to him, how do you do it? His answer was, you have to start the night before. You have to go to bed. Which means you can't do all the things that you might like to do. You can't sit up and watch the 11 o'clock news if you're going to get up at 4.30 in the morning. It's as simple as that. You know, God is not going to blast you out of the bed when the alarm clock goes off. You turn off the alarm clock, but then you're the guy that has to put your feet on the floor. Nobody can do that for you. You must arrange. And if you're reasonable and honest with yourself, most of us know that the only possible time which is really going to be uninterrupted is early in the morning. That's the way it works in our house. Phone starts to ring about 7 o'clock, so we've got to be up and doing the things that are more important than anything else before that. So you have to start the night before. Read and pray is B, under one. And C, you must do what you know God wants you to do. And I emphasize the word know. Do what you know. If you're asking him about this big move, you don't know what to do. You have several options. But you do know that you are supposed to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Are you being obedient in that? You do know that you're supposed to do the job faithfully for which you are being paid by somebody. Are you being obedient in that? You do know that you're supposed to discipline your children, that you're supposed to be cheerful, that you're supposed to pray without ceasing, that you're supposed to be kind. There's a whole long list of things which we know we're supposed to do. 
So you start doing the thing which is next on God's agenda. And very possibly, the next thing on God's agenda is not that decision. The next thing is maybe making an apology to somebody or writing a letter to somebody or cleaning out a closet or getting the faucet fixed or inviting Aunt Susie over to supper. You know, whatever is the next thing. There's a rule of life for me, which is the most simplifying and helpful rule in the world. Do the next thing. When I get frantic, when I get home, it's it's always sort of a frantic feeling to see the pile of work that has piled up in my absence. And for years and years and years, I just felt frustrated and frantic. Instead of just picking up the pile, organizing it, and starting to do whatever is there. Make the phone call, write the letter, go to the grocery store, wash the dirty clothes out of the suitcase, whatever. Do the next thing. Okay, so much for obedience. Now, number two, let's talk about order. One of the characteristics of the holy person is order. And Paul uses the word temperance in this passage in Titus over and over and over again. Speaking of elders, it says he must be hospitable, right-minded, and temperate, just, devout, and self-controlled. Now, nowadays, unfortunately, the word temperate almost always has something to do with drinking alcohol. Uh, Obviously, that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about moderation, balance, sanity, order, just being balanced and ordered in your life. Then down in uh, chapter two, he says, let the older men know that they should be sober. And that doesn't have anything to do with alcohol either. It has to do with godliness, just dependability and order. Sober, high principled and temperate. Sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. The older women, verse 3, should be reverent in their bearing, not scandal mongers or slaves to strong drink. They must set a high standard and school the younger women to be loving wives and mothers, temperate. Now, how is an older woman going to make teach a younger woman to be temperate if she's not temperate herself? Balanced, ordered, sane. And he goes on, chaste, pure kind, busy at home. The older women are to teach the younger women to stay home. How are they going to do that if they're all out working? If the older women are all out working. And sadly enough, that seems to be the case today. So many women over the age of 40 whose children have grown up are saying, now it's my turn to do something for myself. Well, I want to know who are the spiritual mothers who are available to teach the younger women to stay home. I spoke last night about spiritual fatherhood. I would urge on you older women's spiritual motherhood. But let me say every woman in this room is an older woman. Did you ever think of that? You're not all anywhere near as old as I am, but you are older than somebody. Every 20-year-old woman here, every 18-year-old, is older than somebody. I can remember what it was like to be nine years old 
and look up to a 16-year-old. To me, a 16-year-old was just right at the very pinnacle. That was what I wanted to be. And I, there was a 15-year-old girl next door to me. I wanted to look like Ruth and wear my hair like Ruth and talk like Ruth and dress like Ruth and do everything Ruth did. Now, she set an example of a godly teenage girl to me. She had no idea of how she was being scrutinized. And every one of us is in a position to set an example. What Paul uses this word of teaching, the older women are to teach the younger women. He's not talking about a class, a Bible class or a lecture. He's talking about teaching by example. And so I would say to you, every one of you, don't worry about finding a spiritual mother. Worry about being one. Pray about being one. Temperate, kind, chaste, busy at home. And it breaks my heart that women are, in many cases, finding it necessary to work. And in some cases, alas, are being forced by their husbands to work. I would urge you in the name of Jesus Christ to stay home if you possibly can with those children. And if it looks impossible to you from an economic standpoint, and I'm sure that many of you are up against some real hard things financially, if it looks impossible, I would encourage you to lay your blank piece of paper before God and say, Lord, I understand what your word says, that I should stay home. You understand the economic necessities of our family. I don't see any way to do both. Show me. And you might be amazed that God would have something up his sleeve that you never even thought of. I've heard the testimony of many women who've told me and written to me about how God has answered that prayer in a way they could have never imagined. So don't rule out that possibility. It is always possible to do the will of God. It is always possible to do the will of God. I'm not going to say to you, it is not the will of God for you to work. Paul was not speaking to the situation that we have nowadays. I think it's a shame. I think it's a crime. I think it's deplorable. And when I say shame and crime, I just mean that it is sad. It's tragic that so many mothers are working and giving their children over to the care of somebody else. Would you even think of trying to find somebody else to do any other job that is yours? No, the jobs that you have to do, you do. And yet here we are being told by the world, squeezing us into its own mold, put your kids out in daycare, put your kids someplace else. You go out and do something interesting. You do something fulfilling. You wouldn't think of that. So I'm not going to say that it is not God's will for you to have the job that you already have. All I'm saying is, would you be willing to consider before him this possibility? And if it doesn't if God does not give you an answer and you feel that you must continue to work, then all you need to do is delay that list of reasons before God. You don't have to defend yourself to Elizabeth Elliot. I'm not here to tell you what you're doing is right or wrong. I'm here to tell you what the Bible says. And that's my responsibility. See, I can't spell out the exceptions. If you're a special case, that's not my business. I am an older woman here. It clearly says the older women are to teach the younger women to stay home. So that's one of the things that comes under this heading of order, temperate, self-controlled, brought 
into line under the Holy Spirit. My life, in fact, is rearranged by God. You may have to make some radical changes in your life if you're serious about doing the will of God. Any of you, all of you. You remember the rich young man that came to Jesus and he said, what must I do to be saved? And so Jesus, or to inherit the kingdom of heaven, so Jesus gave and said, you must keep the commandments. And he said, well, I've done that. What else do I have to do? And Jesus said, you must sell everything you have. That was too high a price. He was too rich to follow. And he turned around and went away sorrowful. Some of us are too smart to follow, too busy to follow, too rich to follow, too occupied with what we think of as spiritual work to obey. There's a hymn that I love that starts out, Dear Lord and Father of Mankind, but it has this stanza. Drop thy still dews of quietness till all our strivings cease. Take from our souls the strain and stress and let our ordered lives confess the beauty of thy peace. Your ordered life will be a visible sign of the invisible reality of Jesus Christ in your life. I thank God for an ordered home. The order, I think, was very largely dependent on that hour and a half that my father spent on his knees by himself early in the morning with his Bible and his prayer lists. And when we kids came to breakfast in the morning, we knew that we had been prayed for. And then there was family devotions after breakfast, and we were prayed with, and we sang a hymn, and we listened to my father read the Bible. Not just once a day, but twice a day we had family devotions. Six kids in the family. I have people say to me, oh, you could never do that nowadays. I can't imagine how your parents got you all together in one place and made you shut up long enough to listen to the reading of the scriptures. Well, my answer is, you couldn't do it back then either. People say, you couldn't do it now. I say, you couldn't do it then. Not without sacrifice on the part of the parents. Not without discipline. But they did that because to them, that was priority. If it was their job to give us three physical meals a day, they took it for granted that it was their job to give us spiritual food. And then one or the other of them tucked us into bed up until we were probably eight or nine years old and prayed with us again. So three times a day we were prayed with and we heard the scriptures and sometimes we were even sung with in the evening too. That was the order of our home. I speak to you singles. Is your sex life out of order? Is your room a mess? Because you don't care, because you don't have a husband or a wife, and you can live any old way you want. You take off your sweat socks and you throw them on the floor, and you take your sweat shirt off and you throw it over the lampshade. What does this tell me about the order of your life? Temperate. Are you taking your share in the responsibilities of the church, for example, of your workplace, of school? If you have a roommate, do you do your share of the cleaning? You go around with a Bible under your arm when you haven't swept under the bed? I speak to all of you about the areas of order in money, in food, in time, and in sleep.
Paul says in this first chapter to Titus, verse 16, they profess to acknowledge God, but deny him by their actions. May God prevent us from professing to acknowledge him and denying him by our actions. Does your money belong to you or does it belong to God? If I have turned over my body as a living sacrifice, then I turn over all my possessions, don't I? Everything that I have belongs to God. And I try to remember to thank God daily. Lars and I have a house right on the ocean overlooking the Atlantic. Almost every morning when I pray, I say, thank you, Lord, for this place. I know it belongs to him and God could take that house away just like that anytime he wants to. I've lived in a house with no walls and no floors and no furniture, a house which was only six poles on a thatched roof. I appreciate walls and floors and furniture. Have you ever thought of thanking God that you've got a floor in your house? Maybe you're complaining because you don't have wall-to-wall carpets or the wall-to-wall carpets are looking pretty shoddy now and you'd like new ones. How about thanking God for what you do have instead of complaining about what you don't have? Food. Now... I'm on a very, very touchy subject. But I want to say to any of you who may have difficulty in this area, so do I. And you can let, sit there and say, oh, yeah, she, I'm sure she knows all about it. You know, I don't happen to be overweight. But I had discovered years ago that I could get fat just like anybody else so fast. It wasn't until I was 30 years old. Up until I was 30, I seemed to be able to get away with it. All of a sudden, I found out I couldn't get away with it. And I gained fast. I have a very simple method to offer you. It, you don't have to go to the doctor. You don't have to pay any money. You don't have to count any calories. You don't have to eliminate any items from your menu. Does a diet like that sound like it ought to be worth a million dollars? Well, how much will you give me if I tell you? It does work. And Lars and I have a real difficulty because we do so much traveling. We're on the road about 120 days a year, which means that we don't have the choice of what we want to eat. We are constantly being entertained and taken to nice restaurants by people who want to give us the very best. And we get home and we get on the scales and we find out that maybe we've gained a pound or two pounds. It depends on how long we've been away. We went to Norway for Christmas one time and Lars's cousin fed us with cakes and whipped cream. We were there five days. I gained two and a half pounds in five days. Well, that's 180 pounds a year. <laughs> At that rate, I would have gained 180 pounds a year. So when I get home, I have to do something about it immediately before I go out on the next trip. What do I do? Well, I'll tell you my method. Simple as anything. Eat exactly half of what you would normally eat. Half a piece of toast, half a potato, half a sandwich, half a bowl of soup. If you normally would have two helpings of soup, you eat one. And it works. It's the simplest thing in the world. It'll work for the rest of your life. All crash diets are self-defeating because they will not work for the rest of your life. But as I said, for this method, you can even eat chocolate sundae, but you can only have half. And you will lose weight. Anybody will lose weight if they keep this up long enough. Don't expect miracles tomorrow. Time. 
Does your time belong to you or to God? My time belongs to God, just like my money, my house, and my body. I do not want to deny him by my actions in the use of time. I would speak particularly to those who have a television addiction. I'm not against television. I think those nature programs that come on on public television are absolutely wonderful. And there are other things that are worthwhile occasionally. Lars and I have no time at all to sit down and watch television, but I do have a television set about that big on my kitchen counter. So when I'm paring potatoes or cooking at the stove, I can be listening to the news or whatever else I might want to listen to. We also have a little tiny one in the dressing room, so we can listen to the first five minutes of the Today Show as we're getting dressed in the morning. But when it comes to shutting out everything else that's going on in the family in order to watch the World Series or the Olympics or the playoffs, can you do that and still be faithful to your children and your family? I leave it with you to deal with the matter like that before God. I've spoken of order in the marriage. God has already ordained what the order is, who's in charge and who is to submit. The command to husbands is not make your wives obey. The Bible does not say that. What does it say to husbands? Love your wives as Christ loved the church. It does not say love your wives as Christ loved the church, provided they are submissive. And it does not say to us wives, be submissive to your husband if he loves you as Christ loved the church. May I see the hands of those women who are married to men who have always loved them exactly as Christ loved the church 100% of the time since their wedding day. Now, you see, every one of us would have an excuse for disobeying God which depends on the other person because there isn't a woman in this room that has ever submitted the way the church is supposed to submit to Christ to her husband. And there isn't a husband in this room that has ever loved his wife as Christ loved the church. So what have we got here? We have a room full of sinners, miserable offenders. I belong to a church where we say we have left undone those things which we ought to have done and we have done those things which we ought not to have done and there is no health in us. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. But my obedience to God in submission to my husband is not contingent on his. And his obedience to God in loving me is not contingent on mine. Do you understand? When you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, God is not going to say to the man, why didn't your wife obey you? He's going to say, why didn't you love her as Christ loved the church? Did you cherish her? Did you lay down your life for her? Were you sacrificial in your love? And he's not going to say to us women, why didn't your husband love you as Christ loved the church? It's not my business. My business is the command to me. He's going to say to me, why didn't you submit to him? Order is what it's about. It's not a matter of competence. I don't submit to Lars because he is more competent. He holds an office. 
And the last thing, number three, and I have just five minutes to spend on this one. If things are going to be set in order in my life, the rule of my life will be self-giving love. Number three is self-giving love. Love is a word that has fallen on very hard times. It means practically nothing anymore except a feeling or a mood or worse, a glandular condition, a hormonal condition. That is not what love is about, according to scripture. Herein know we the love of God that he laid down his life for us. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave himself. And if he gave himself for us, we in our turn, according to 1 John 3.16, must lay down our lives for the brethren. You and I are to become broken bread and poured out wine. It is to be my life for yours. Self-giving love and every action is to spring from self-giving love. If it depends, if it has something to do with another person, then I must love God and love that person. If it is something private between me and God, I'm giving myself to him in love. Not because he's hitting me over the head with a two by four and saying, this is what you must do. It's because he loves me. He's my father. He's my shepherd. He's my savior. He's my Lord. He's my friend. He's my master. And with all my heart, I say, Lord, I give up all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and accept thy will for my life. I'll take your agenda, whatever it is you want to give me, Lord. If it's singleness, my answer is yes, Lord. And although you're looking at a woman who has number three husband along with her this this morning, you are also looking at a woman who has been single most of her life. I've been married a total of about 17 years. I'm 61 years old. When God gave me the gift of singleness, I had to take it. I didn't want it for the rest of my life. When I got married to Jim Elliott, I accepted the gift of marriage. Thank you, Lord. And I thought till death us do part. That's many decades down the road. It was 27 months. And God gave me the third gift, one that I would never have asked for, widowhood. But if I love God and I have given myself to him, then I have to believe, and I do believe, that God is never going to withhold from me one good thing. That's in the scriptures, you know, that's not me talking. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. What does it mean to walk uprightly? It means trust. It means obedience. It means holiness. And I trust him for that. And so I receive the gift of widowhood with both hands. And I say, yes, Lord. Self-giving love will be the measure of my maturity. You know that the parent's job is to get that totally selfish child and we're born totally selfish. I'm going to do my thing and nobody is going to tell me what to do. We're born with that, aren't we? 
Not a single woman here was ever born with a truly humble and submissive spirit. People, some, when I, if there's one thing that irritates me, and I do a lot of things irritate me about the way I get quoted, but I hear people say, Elizabeth Elliot thinks that women are supposed to submit to their husbands. Well, where in the world did I ever get an idea like that? I'll tell you right now, I didn't get it out of my head. And I certainly didn't get it out of my temperament and my personal desires. I got it out of this book. So I am subject to the word of God if I'm going to give myself to him. And the only way that I'm going to grow in spiritual maturity is in loving God and giving myself for other people. That is the name of the game in Christianity. And it isn't the game, is it? Sacrificial love. So the parent has got to get that totally selfish child from that totally self-centered view of things where the whole world revolves around him, the whole house revolves around him, everything that he wants he gets. You've got to get him out of that and teach him what self-giving love is. Now, you don't read Romans 12, 1 and 2 to a two-year-old. You don't use a word like sacrifice and you don't talk about self-giving love and maturity. But what do you do? You pass the plate of cookies and you say, you may have one cookie. He doesn't grab the cookies. Or you say to him, Johnny, would you pass Susie the cookies first? Would you share your toys? Would you take turns? And when he says no, then he needs to be spanked. And your faithfulness to God is going to be demonstrated in the use of a rod. Because Proverbs speaks of the use of a rod about six times. I'm not saying what size or anything. My mother used to use a little thin uh, switch off a bush. That's what we called it. And she would switch our legs. But if you start soon enough, the child knows that you mean exactly what you say. You don't repeat commands six times. You speak once. And if there isn't obedience, then the switch comes. And the child learns very early that you mean what you say. And that is self-giving love. It costs you something. Have you ever heard a parent say, this hurts me more than it hurts you? Did your parents ever say that to you? Did you believe them? Of course you didn't. Not until you're the parent. It takes sacrifice. It takes self-discipline. That's all I'm going to say. Let me go back over the outline, lest you've gotten lost again. My talk is on set in order. An ordered life is characterized by, number one, obedience, number two, order, and number three, self-giving love. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your endless patience with us. We are so slow not only to understand, but to obey when we do understand. Lord, I don't know what you may have said to each individual here this morning, but I pray that there may be something which has touched each heart, some place on which you have put your finger, and that there may be a response of trust 
and obedience. Help us, Lord, to do the next thing on your agenda. Because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.